my name is Sam Cotman. I'm the Director of Pro Bono at Travis Smith, and I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water. Scott, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you, and we're really pleased that you could join us today. I hope you don't mind me starting with this question, um, but you're not what people might consider a typical uh, charity founder. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you currently are? Sure. Uh, well, right. I was a nightclub promoter for 10 years uh, during my first career. I had moved to New York City at the age of 18 to rebel against a very conservative Christian upbringing. And I thought the best way to rebel would be to become the king of New York City nightlife. And I spent the next 10 years trying to achieve that title, working at 40 different nightclubs, uh, you know, selling these, you know, 20 pound cocktails or $25 drinks and $1,000 bottles of champagne to models and celebrities and actors and bankers. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I got pretty close. I probably got to top eight in the city, but also picked up all of the vices and challenges uh, one, one might imagine would go with the territory of uh, going to dinner at 10, the nightclubs at 12 midnight and then stumbling home you know at dawn uh, to then just do it all over again so you know my first career you know while while pretty successful and you know i collected the bmw and the rolex watch and the model girlfriend and the grand piano in my new york loft all these things that i thought you know were were these markers of uh of of fortune i guess of success i was really a, a deeply miserable uh, emotionally, morally, spiritually bankrupt individual at the end of this. And I realized this at 28 years old and uh, kind of realized that if I continued down this path, I was leaving perhaps the most meaningless legacy that a person could leave on the planet. My tombstone might actually read, here lies a man who got a million people drunk. And that's not it. Uh, maybe 2 million people, maybe 5 million you know, if I kept at it. And, you know, I had this, this crisis of faith and conscience and, and morality and decided, you know, not a, a, a small course correction was not needed. This was not a pivot that was needed in my life. This was a 180 degree change. Go find every single thing I'm doing and then go do the exact opposite. And being a pretty radical, you know, extreme guy, I, I wound up selling almost everything that I owned and saying, I'm going to start life over at 28, and I'm going to see if I can be useful to others. And that led me to post-war Liberia, West Africa, as a volunteer on a medical humanitarian mission. Uh, and I joined this group of doctors and surgeons and nurses as a photojournalist to see if I could be helpful, if I could tell a different kind of story. Uh, if I could use some of those promoting skills that had packed nightclubs full of people, um, but could I tell the story of humanitarian work? And how that was it? Yeah. Can, can I ask how was it going? You've described this sort of flamboyant life in New York, the clubs, the, the drinks, and all of a sudden um, you're, you're still a young man and you find yourself walking up the plank, for want of a better word, to a, a whole new world in, in a boat floating off the coast of Africa, heading towards helping people. That's a pretty drastic change. How did you feel in yourself 
about Damn, I loved ahead. it. I, I was so done with the old self and and here I, you know, I'm now surrounded by this group of of humanitarian doctors and nurses and surgeons. And these are people who could be making money in private practice and, and many of them did, but they were sacrificing of their skills and their talent and their time to to help people who simply didn't have access to you know, to, to medical services. So it was wildly inspiring. And I wanted, you know, everything, I just wanted to be around them as, as fast as I, yeah, I wanted to spend as much time with them as, as I could. Um, and, and, you know, Liberia was, was kind of wild west at the time. I mean, there was no electricity in the country, no running water in the country, no sewage. Uh, this is a country that had just come out of a brutal 14 year civil war. Um, where, where Charles Taylor had put guns in the hands of children and forced them to fight. So, I, I, you know, it was an assault on the census. I'd never seen or experienced anything like this in, in my life. Um, and here we were doing good. Here we were helping people and, and helping to pick up the pieces. So it was incredibly inspiring. And, you know, there wasn't really a, I didn't miss the, the pulsing lights of the club or, or the drinks. So to sort of set the scene where we are time-wise, we, we're in the early 2000s here. Uh, is that about right, sort of early to mid-2000s? Yeah, this would be 2004, exactly. 2004. Um, and I was, I was 30 years old at the time okay. uh, that this happened. And I understand um, there was a particular person on that boat who ended up being one of your mentors. I'm sure you've met all kinds of interesting people, but it was um, a doctor called Gary Parker, is that right? That's right. Uh, so the, the story of Dr. Gary Parker, he was one of those surgeons. He had a, a practice in California and he'd heard about this hospital ship where he could serve. And he decided to volunteer for three months. And when I met him, he had been there for 25 years. So he fell so in love wow. with the work that he just, he just never left. And it was, it was remarkably inspiring to, to be around him. I, I, would, um, I would put on the surgical scrubs and I would document some of his eight and 10 hour surgeries, just wanting to spend time with him, wanting to talk to him. And that year that I volunteered eventually turned into two years. And on, on the second tour back to Liberia, my second year there, he was really, well, well two things happened. One, I experienced the water crisis for the first time. And, you know, like maybe many people listening, uh, I took water for granted my entire life. I used it in my coffee. I took long showers. You know, I brushed my teeth with clean water. It was just always available. And I learned that half of the people in the country didn't have clean water to drink. Half of the country was drinking contaminated, unsafe water. And then I learned a second thing that half of the disease in the country, and remember, I was with these doctors, half of the disease was because people were drinking unsafe water uh, and didn't have access to sanitation and proper hygiene. So Dr. Gary was really the one uh, in that second year that said, you know, Scott, you, if you really wanted to make an impact on global health, instead of you know, doing what I do, and obviously I wouldn't be a surgeon, but you know, effectively, instead of just raising money for these expensive surgeries, you would just go and get everybody in the world clean water. You would just, you know, eliminate, eradicate so much of the sickness around the world 
by providing the most basic need for health. And at the time, Sam, a billion people globally were living without clean water, you know, on a six billion population. So one in six people alive back then were, were drinking dirty water. Now it's one in 10 alive. So 15 years later, we've made okay. a lot of progress, but it's still 770 million people. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an astonishing amount of, of people without you know, clean water. It's the, the statistics are just extraordinary. They're quite hard to, to really grasp, to be honest. But it's like 12 UKs, right? Like 12, <laughs> two Americas, 12 United Kingdoms full of people around the world who are drinking disgusting, dirty, toxic water every day. And, and we can, you know, we can see what a dirty water looks like. We can see what clean water looks like. But when you were on the ship and you were in the communities and you were looking at the people that came to you, what does it actually look like? to see the sort of the disease and the impact on a community. When you pull up with the sort of portable hospital and the doctors, who is it that is walking towards you that, that needs your help? Yeah, well, we, and so remember that Liberia was, was a crazy context because of this 14 year war. So there was one doctor for every 50,000 people in the country, for every 50,000 people, one doctor. And there were two surgeons in the country, but there was nowhere for them to, to operate. We would, we would post these flyers. Uh, so before the ship would arrive, we would flyer the country and we would announce the coming of the doctors and the coming of this, this patient screening where we could, where we could triage. And, you know, uh, I remember my third day in Africa, I was so excited. I, I learned that the government had given us a football stadium, an arena where we would, we would meet the people who uh, were, were going to be coming for, for help. And uh, 5,000 people were there. Uh, 5,000 people were standing in the parking lot outside the stadium. And, and I, uh, I remember, you know, it was, uh, it was early in the morning. It was 5.30 in the morning. And I'd never seen, you know, suffering like this. I'd never seen people lined up like this, just, just with a hope of seeing a doctor. And the problem was we only had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. So 5,000 people came, 1,500 slots. That meant we turned away over 3,000 people that day who, who had come for help, who had come for, for healing. And I remember that was incredibly difficult. I was, I was in tears. So many people were just, were, were, I just remember we're weeping that day, you know, realizing that, that we, we later realized many of these people had come, they'd walked for more than a month. They'd come from neighboring countries. They'd come from Cote d'Ivoire, from Guinea, or from Togo, from Benin, just, just trying to see our doctors. And we just didn't have enough doctors. And that was... That was kind of an indelible moment. Uh, I, I'll never forget when we closed the doors of the stadium and the doctor said there are no more slots and then people had to go home sick. And that's an awful lot for somebody, well, for anybody to process, let alone someone who's relatively new to this world. What, what kind of support did you have um, yourself when you were experiencing these things and you're going through this quite seismic change in what your daily life looks like? Yeah, well, there were a lot of newbies. So we would get together and say, you know, oh my gosh, did you see that? I mean, Sam, people were coming with massive facial tumors, with uh, fibromas. Uh, people were coming with flesh-eating disease, uh, blind, uh, cataracts, 
cleft lips, cleft palate, cleft faces. You know, we were seeing uh, such extreme cases and extreme deformity. Um, it was it was really it was a lot. Um, and I think a lot of us just got together and, and some of the veterans said, focus on, I remember Dr. Gary said, focus on the hope, you know, focus on the people we are going to be able to serve, you know, the, the 1500 people whose lives will change because of the coming of our doctors and, and what we're, what we're bringing to this. Focus on the hope is a very nice turn of phrase. I think, um, looking at any challenging issue, it, it always seems bigger than you could possibly be sometimes. Um, but focusing on what you can change, is, is that a sort of motto for you going forward? I mean, you're trying to change the entire planet's uh, world water issue and the shortage and everything that flows through. It's quite a big ask. Um, is that one of your ways of looking at things yeah. and how you get through and you sort of see your progress? Yes, yes. And, and you know, right, like, as you said, there's a uh, Right now, there's 771 million people that lack access to clean drinking water. You know, we'll probably talk about this, but but my organization now, over the last 15 years, we're we're about to serve 15 million total people. Now, it's a lot of money. We've raised over 500 million pounds, and you know, a big community around the world of, of donors has stepped up. But at one fiftieth of the way there, you know, it's two percent of the work done. So you have to focus on, you know, 13 million people. One of the things that I do is I, I fill stadiums uh, full of people with, uh, with clean water. So I, I'm from New York City. My local stadium is uh, Madison Square Garden. So, you know, I imagine uh, two years of sold out shows, you know, over 700 uh, Madison Square Gardens full of people. You know, O2 arenas, right? It's over, I think it's over 800 O2 mm -hmm. arenas full of people whom we've helped. Um, but yet there's so much more to do. So I think it's this tension. You're going back and forth by, we haven't done enough. We've got to go faster. We've got to scale the movement. We've got to scale the org. And then you try to find ways to, to encourage yourself uh, as well in, in some of these moments. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I think um, for a problem this big, when you're trying to explain it to people, it's hard for them to grasp and it's hard to make it human. Uh, so I'm interested as we talk to pick out some of the humans that I know you've come across that sort of shape your experience. Um, is, there, is there anyone, just as we leave the Mercy Ships um, sort of stage in your life, uh, is there any particular individual um, that you met that stands out that sort of brought it all home for you, the impact that you could have and, and the issue as you saw it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this, my, my first, the first patient that I met, uh, the first patient, so uh, just as a reminder, I might not have said this, but my job was to document all 1,500 of those people for the medical library. So I had a camera, you know, feet away from their face, documenting their deformity for the medical library. And then uh, I, would, I would take them post-op and, and show this transformation. So that was an amazing part of the job because I got to see effectively 1,500 sick people and then 1,500 well people or, or people that had been you know, touched by these doctors in a positive way. So there was really the first child, the first boy that I met uh, was, was a little boy named Alfred Sassou. He was 14. His mom was smart. She had gotten him there way early so that he would be seen by the doctors. And 
he had a giant tumor, Sam. It, the, the tumor was the size of, of a small soccer ball. Uh, and it was taking over his face that had pushed out his jaw and his teeth. And he was having a hard time breathing. He, he was literally being suffocated by a quickly growing benign tumor. And his, his family had taken him to witch doctors because there was no surgeon to take him to. They had, uh, you know, they had spread chicken blood on his tumor. They had chanted, you know, none of this had worked. And the tumor just kept growing and growing and growing. And when I met him, you know, he was literally on the brink of death. And I'll never forget just the, the terror, the fear in his eyes. And a couple of days later, he, he was able to get a, a screening card for surgery. And a couple of days later, Dr. Gary uh, was able to, to operate on him. And, you know, it was an eight hour surgery and he removed the tumor. And it was just so cool to, to see this, this transformation. Uh, of of this little boy, um, and he got his. I, a couple weeks later, I took him back to his village without the tumor, and I got to watch him. You know, his whole community come around him, and they were excited, and they were dancing and clapping. And this little boy was restored to to health, and it was just it was just amazing, absolutely uh, amazing experience. And I've been able to keep up with him since, and. You know, I saw a picture of him recently. He's a he's a plumber and and wound up getting married and you know just it was it was really really cool. When you were out there, and that that's amazing, and and that does sort of bring it home. When when you were out there, did you actually see um, when you were sort of going out into the country? Did you see the water sources that these communities were relying on? Did you sort of see it directly? What was the the root cause of a lot of this illness? Yeah. So again, half the country was drinking dirty water. And I, I remember meeting this 13 year old girl named Hawa. And I realized that the swamp in her village was the only water she'd ever known her entire life. She was drinking from a green, disgusting, mucky swamp. And this was the only water she'd known. This is the only water she had access to. And I saw a well built in her village and you know, a bunch of guys came, they found clean drinking water underneath her village. And she drank clean water uh, for the first time in her life. And I got to see this. And, you know, as maybe as stark as the transformation of somebody living with a tumor on the brink of death, and then this tumor is gone, and they're able to smile and eat and laugh. Uh, this, this was just as stark a transformation through clean water, going from dirty water to clean water, but not just for Hawa, for a whole village of a few hundred people, and really at a fraction of the cost of the surgery. That's amazing. And I, yeah, I think the fact that you've sort of seen it directly, and you've seen the impact, and you've seen how it plays out amongst children in particular is very powerful. So you've, you've experienced this extraordinary thing, you've literally taken the photographs, and you've come back to New York um, energized, but with quite a big mission ahead of you. What, what happens next? How are your first steps in this, this sort of new world of yours? Yeah, so I would have actually told you, uh, had you met me then, I would have said, I'm gonna bring clean drinking water to everybody on the planet, and that's my mission. And uh, yeah, I don't know how I was gonna do that, but I was gonna go and, and try to start an organization and build a movement where I, I would get the world to care about clean water, uh, to, to, to care about making sure every human being alive had clean and safe water to drink. And uh, I was broke at the time because I'd 
uh, nightclub promoters are not great at saving money. And I'd, I'd given everything over the two years that I'd had to Mercy Ships and the people that I'd, I'd met um, on the journey. But again, the, the vision was clear and I just started an organization. Uh, and I, I went and I, I got charitable status and said, I'm gonna raise awareness, I'm gonna raise money, I'm gonna fly around the world, I'm gonna go find partners who can turn that money into clean water by constructing water projects and you know let let's go and one of the one of the other advantages i think i had them was i i really didn't have a lot of charitable experience so i didn't outside of mercy ships you know and, and following a bunch of doctors around i didn't really know what i was doing so i had this advantage of just talking to everyday people who worked at banks or at sephora or mm -hmm. you know um, at mtv at the time and I realized so many everyday people did not trust charities and they were skeptical about giving to charities. They were cynical. And I would hear, you know, these kind of stories of, oh, I don't know where my money's actually going to go. It's probably just going to go to overhead or, you know, what if some warlord's going to drive a Lexus around Africa with my money? And, and I thought, okay, well, if we're going to build a movement, a global movement uh, around clean water, we're going to need a new business model. We're going to need to, to restore this lost uh, faith in charity. We're gonna need to bring in the skeptic and the cynic and get them excited about engaging and excited about giving. So I, I had a couple ideas uh, around, around this for Charity Water, but um, the, the first idea was really simply, could we give 100% of all donations that we raised directly to fund these water projects? Um, and, and to do that, you know, I asked the question, what if I opened up a separate bank account for overhead where all of the overhead was funded separately uh, by a small group of private donors or business leaders so that I could make this promise that every penny, every pound, every euro would go directly to people who needed access to clean water. And uh, that was uh, 15 years ago. And, and we have kept those two bank accounts completely separate, uh, a church and state, if you will, um, now for, uh, for 15 years and a, a small group of about 125 families, uh, many of them actually from the UK fund the overhead. And then over a million donors now have been able to give to clean water, knowing that hundred percent of their money goes directly to help people in need. That's amazing. Um, but it sounds very difficult. <laughs> sounds very it, difficult it to start something from scratch with no great sort of backing and then just make this moral and principled decision well all the money for staff and everything goes here and all the money for charity goes here and that you know the two rivers don't cross uh, were, were there ever any moments or phases where you just thought i can't do it i can't keep it up something's got to give we need to stay afloat you know were, were there some dark dark times along your sure your sure you know for sure um you know there was there was a moment early on where we um we almost ran out of money, um, but but we were so successful in the overhead account. Uh, sorry, we were so successful in the water project account. We were raising so much money for the water projects, um, but we were having a hard time raising money for overhead. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of remember the details. There was $771,000, I think, or $750,000 in the water account. And we were about to miss payroll for our small team on the overhead account. And it was, it was interesting. The advice I was getting, Sam, from people was, hey, borrow, right? Go borrow against that, 
the public's money. Go make, you got to pay your staff. You got to make payroll and you know, you'll pay it back later. And I just remember saying, if we borrow one penny from that public account that we said we would never touch, our integrity is compromised. There's a, there's a crack at the core of the foundation of charity water. I will not do it. So I was actually going to unwind the charity, send all that money to the field to build as many water projects as possible, and then effectively cry business model failure and say, this mm -hmm. just didn't work. And, uh, you know, fortunately, um, you know, I think we, we held true to our principles there. And, and um, the most remarkable thing happened. Um, a, a British donor walked into our office. Uh, this is a, a man who had just sold his company with his wife. And he learned about what we were doing. He learned about the financial situation we were in. He loved this 100% model. And he said, uh, I'm going to wire a million dollars into your overhead accounts to give you a year of funding so you have more time to work out this business model. And, you know, it was a near death experience for Charity Water, but, you know, that was 500 million pounds ago. And, you know, now there are 125 families who do support the overhead and, and, and we've never kind of been close to that, to the edge again. I'd, I'd love to tell you that all British people are like that. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm well, this, and, I and, cannot, I, and I, I will say uh, <laughs> this, this gentleman and his wife have now given, you know, over 15 million pounds uh, to overhead over the years. And they've come with me to 13 different countries and have gotten really deeply embedded uh, in our work. So uh, we've met some, some very, very generous uh, British people over the years. Well, that's fabulous. Um, and that, that's really nice to hear. And what, what did it mean? It, you know, I can tell from talking to you and, you know, learning about your charity, just how, how much this is a passion project. When you have put all of yourself into something and you're at the point of it failing, it's quite a lot of emotions circulating for someone to then enter sort of left field and say, I'll write you a check for a million dollars because I believe in your mission. Um, that doesn't happen very often. How, how did that feel no. um, after you put so much of yourself into it? You know, it, it's funny because at the time it was all about the money and what we could do with the money and we weren't dead and the, the organization would, would continue, uh, would, would kind of live to fight another day. But really, upon more thought later, uh, and as I developed a relationship with Michael, it was really the confidence he inspired in me. Somebody believed in me as a social entrepreneur, and someone believed in this idea. So I think it was the encouragement, maybe, of the gesture, even more than, than the money, which was desperately needed, that, that really helped us uh, go to the next level. It's, it's, it's interesting because you've got sort of you as the driving energy to make to make it happen. Then you have this support behind you that maybe nobody will ever see and, and really understand who people that come in with the finance and they see the mission. And then you have the work and then you have the inspiration that comes from the humanity of it. Yeah. Um, one of the things which I wanted to touch on uh, unsurprisingly today is my little prop, uh, your book. Uh, which is which is absolutely fabulous, um, and uh, it, it's about your journey and and what's taken you sort of from one stage to the next and your inspiration, etc. Uh, what what is it if you can sort of distill it that that drives you then and also drives you now? Because to maintain this level of energy um, and, and drive is is very difficult. So, what is it do you think in particular that that really moves you to to make this such a success? It's funny, Sam. I've been getting asked that a lot lately. Maybe it's the fifteen year mark. 
uh, people are kind of still shocked that, <laughs> that I'm doing it. Um, I think it's having a really clear vision. So I, I really meant that. I believe we are working towards a day when every human being has access to clean water and that that growing a movement of people to care about this issue is actually possible. Um, the beauty of, of water is it's, it's one of those few inarguable common goods, you know, regardless of where you stand politically, regardless of whether you're a person of faith or not, uh, regardless of where you stand on contentious social issues of the day, everybody stands for clean water, right? Everybody thinks Human beings, women, girls, children need clean drinking water to thrive, to flourish, to be healthy. So we're able to build a really big tent of concern around this issue. And we've built a fraction of that tent so far. You know, we've gotten a million people involved in charity water. Um, and I just think, you know, I, I'm, I'm so bullish of how big this thing could get. The addressable market for people who could care about clean water and give something is, you know, an order of magnitude greater than, than what we have achieved so far in 15 years. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting you talk about the people that are supporting you. They've very much become part of your story. Um, and I know people have climbed mountains, cycled, yes shave their heads all you know wonderful things um there was one individual that i came across when i was reading your book i think uh, whose story particularly struck me uh by the name of rachel beckwith, rachel beckwith yeah uh, and i wonder if you could share with us uh her story and um you know what happened there yeah well one of the early ways that we were raising money was asking people to donate their birthday to charity water so in lieu of gifts uh, you know and, and we said look a lot of people get gifts that we don't want we don't need you know most people have their their needs met that we're interacting with charity water and we said donate your birthday skip the party and ask for your age in dollars or pounds or euros as a gift so right a 32 year old would say hey donate 32 pounds for my birthday and 100 percent of the money will help people get clean water and then charity water tracks that money and shows people so Rachel Beckwith had heard me speak about this issue in Seattle, Washington, on the West Coast of America, and she was turning nine, so she donated her ninth birthday. And she tried to raise $300, which would be enough uh, at the time for 10 people to get clean water. So she had a goal of using her ninth birthday to help 10 people get clean water. And uh, Sam, she fell a little short. She only raised $220. And she was bummed about it. And she told her mom, I'm going to try harder next year with my fundraising. Uh, you know, she'd only helped, what, seven people or so. And, you know, tragically, uh, right after her birthday, she was killed in a car crash. There was a 20-car pileup, a tractor trailer had lost control on the highway. And she was the only fatality uh, as the tractor trailer uh, just demolished the back seat of the car that she was in. And I was in Central African Republic at the time. I remember landing back at the New York airport, turning on my Blackberry at the time and getting a, a note from the pastor of her church who said there was this little girl in my congregation. She'd heard of your mission. She gave up her birthday and she just died. And the family would love to reopen that campaign and honor 
you know, her, her memory, her, her last wish, really her birthday wish. And he said, I'm going to have my church, you know, everybody donate at least $9 in her honor. And it just started taking off uh, Rachel's story throughout this church community, then through the Seattle community. Then it started spreading across the country. Uh, it was picked up on the morning shows. Then it started sp spreading to the, the UK and across Europe. And then eventually, Sam, even down to Africa. And we saw people in Africa donating $9 in, in Rachel's wow. honor. She raised $1.2 million. So she went from this seed of $220 to $1.2 million of impact. And I had the fortune of uh, the honor really of taking her mom and her grandparents to Ethiopia exactly a year after her death. Um, so they spent the one year anniversary of her death with me going village to village to village, meeting thousands of the people who had clean water. And uh, I'll never forget in, in one village, you know, I write about this in the book that uh, one of the, the, the older women came up to Rachel's mom and she threw herself down in the dust and started kissing her feet. And she said through a translator, you know, we have known grief as well. We have known loss. We have lost our children, but your daughter's death brought our children life. And it was just so beautiful. That's amazing. Um, you know, to kind of see, you know, this, this terrible tragedy, the untimely death of a child uh, turn into this moment of inspiration and life for, for thousands more. Uh, what's cool is now, uh, now many years later after Rachel's death, we went and we looked at that data set and so many of the people that donated to her birthday went on to donate their own birthdays and become fundraisers and they raised another $2 million. So her impact now is well over $3 million, uh, which was enough for 100,000 people to get clean water. That's extraordinary. I think one of, the, um, one of the interesting things about seeing people give to your charity and how passionately they do it is that people seem to take so much joy from giving and from helping. Now, you've probably seen that up front closer than anybody else. Is, can you explain what it is that makes people happy or what it is that gives them this sense of, of having done the right thing for being involved in something like your charity and addressing an issue like this? Because it's a very difficult thing to quantify, but it's very noticeable that when people do step up, they step away from having done that, feeling a bit better about themselves and, and life. And um, I can't quite explain it, but I wonder if, I wonder if you can. Um... I think the more you give, the more you give. So it's like this, this muscle that when you work at out, when you work out the generosity muscle, you, you know, you, you find this joy, this happiness in helping others. Um, I I've seen that time and time again. I mean, there was a guy once that came across charity water and he was about to buy a BMW and he realized that if he bought a Toyota instead, he could give three communities access to clean water. You know, about a thousand people could get clean water. And he wound up buying the Toyota and sending in the difference between the nice BMW and the Toyota Camry. And, and I just remember when he, you know, when he saw those villages with clean water, when he knew that those projects were built and that they were serving people, there was such a great happiness and satisfaction you know, a thousand people's lives or a luxury car. 
right? There was no comparison. So I think it's our job as, as organizations, as charities, to make this real for people, to make it feel like they're not just giving into a void. They're giving into some sort of black hole that is, you know, where, I don't know, it's supporting a bunch of, of Western salaries or so. And that's why breaking out the overhead has been so important. We really just have 125 families that we're accountable to. Uh, that we need to, you know, to get them excited about the office and the Epson copy machine costs and the phone bills and the flights and all that nasty overhead. And, and then we can do really cool things as we connect the public's donations to the impact. So I think it's, that's, that's what's missing for a lot of people in the joy of giving is this, this proof loop or this this knowledge. You know, the other thing that I would say is I've, I've really found that people give to people even more than they give to causes. You know, I bet nobody listening woke up this morning and said, I have to do something about the global water crisis. You know, it, it drives me crazy that as I took a shower today, people are walking eight hours to a swamp or to a, a dirty pond or a river for water. You know, this is this is not an issue that that most of us have have ever experienced. You know, we've just water's always been there. It's a part of our lives. You know, even, even if you're in a a lower income bracket, you know, you, you have clean water running through the pipes in in your home typically. So again, it's it's our job to tell stories, to uh, to hire great people, and to equip an army of ambassadors and volunteers who can go out and passionately tell the story and then you know, bring people into this kind of tent uh, of, of the movement of clean water. I think that's, um, that humanizing of the issue is, is a massive challenge and it's maybe one thing that your charity has done extraordinarily well um, and looking across the charity sector as we do um, in our pro bono work and our charitable work at the firm, we see a lot of charities that struggle with that and, and making it real enables people to connect with you. Um, uh, speaking of that, uh, I, I know that you work across so many different countries in Africa and elsewhere. Um, and one of the countries um, that I'm particularly interested in, uh, which I think is special to you as well as Ethiopia. Yeah. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your connection to Ethiopia and um, your impact out there. Yeah, well, I've been there 31 times now, so lots of uh, lots of travel to Ethiopia, and you know it's going through a, an incredibly challenging time now up in the north. Uh, there's a, a effectively a civil war going on uh, between Tigray uh, and the the Ethiopian government, which has put people at risk. Uh, there's famine. There have been some some really terrible uh, atrocities there, um, and and some you know human rights issues. Um, but it's a, it's a country that I love. It's an extraordinary history. You know, it's the birthplace of coffee uh, in the Kaffa region of Ethiopia. You know, it's, it's one of two countries in Africa that has, has never been colonized. They were occupied, but they always threw off the oppressor. So there's a pride and a dignity in, in Ethiopia that's just unparalleled anywhere else. And it's an extraordinarily beautiful country. You have mountains and lakes and rivers and deserts and the Danical depression. And uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's my favorite place on, on earth. Uh, and that, that's know, a pretty good write up. <laughs> my, my heart has just been, been breaking for, for what's happening there mm. um, as a, you know, again, as a place that I, I know, I mean, I've probably taken 350 people to Ethiopia now as well. 
So really, really, really challenging time for the country, but an amazing place. And um, one of the stories that is, is quite striking about um, the reality of communities that don't have water and what it means to them, uh, I think is, is something you've spoken about um, coming out of Ethiopia. Um, in particular, there was an individual there called Letakiris, whose story I think not only did you come across, but then you went way out of your way to sort of really feel it and, and, yeah. and see it for yourself. Um, I wonder if you could share that with us as well, again, just uh, for people that don't really understand, uh, which most of us don't, what, what it is to not have clean water or the impact and the sort of heart and energy that goes into collecting it for so many people. Maybe you could talk us through that story to, to make it a bit more real. Yeah, I mean, this is a 13-year-old a, a girl uh, in Ethiopia, and she was walking for water, uh, like so many people do all around the world. And she would walk about eight hours a day. Um, she, she lived on top of a, a plateau in a community called Meda. And a, after one of these eight-hour walks, uh, before she reached her house, and, and she would walk with a heavy clay pot on her back. Uh, which was attached to her to kind of wrap a rope around the clay pot and the neck of the clay pot and then uh, around her shoulders and then would kind of bend over and, and, and hold the clay pot on her back. So, you know, this clay pot probably weighs 10 pounds. The water weighs another 40. So you've got a 13-year-old hauling 50 pounds worth of, of water, you know, every day. And at the end of one of these journeys, before she reached her village, she slipped and she fell and she broke the clay pot and all the water that she had spent the whole day collecting just spilled out. And what was so tragic about her story was instead of going back uh, to get another pot or then you know doing another eight hour walk to collect water, she was in such despair that she, she took the rope and she tied it around her neck and she hung herself from the tree uh, that was next to where she'd fallen. And the village elders found this 13-year-old girl's body, you know, swinging with a noose around her neck and a broken clay pot uh, next to, to this tree. And, you know, I, I wound up living in this village for a week and walking in her footsteps and seeing the tree and, and meeting her family and her friends and, you know, going to her grave and uh, kind of just learning more about her life and, and the conditions in this village. And, you know, it, uh, it came at a moment when I really needed to reconnect to the urgency of the work. And, you know, I remember just leaving a week later, just, you know, fired up. I mean, 13-year-old girls should not be hanging themselves from trees because they spilled their water. 13-year-old girls should not be living in conditions where they've got to walk eight hours for dirty water uh, to provide for, for their families. Uh, so yeah, that, that, you know, there's so many, unfortunately, so many tragic stories like that, that I've encountered, you know, I've, I've now been to 70 different countries and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen death and disease and, you know, I've talked to women in, in Niger, uh, West Africa, who've lost eight children, uh, so many of them due to, to bad water and just, you know, continue to suffer this, this loss and this trauma, um, and then I've also been in, in, in places that, that I've, I've gotten to meet women who have clean water and seen mm -hmm. families and communities transformed. There was this one woman named Helen 
I met in Uganda. Um, actually, I didn't meet her. Uh, my team met her in Uganda. Um, I met her family uh, on, a, on a subsequent visit, but she had gotten clean water for the first time in her life. And she told her team that her life was now transformed because she felt beautiful because she finally had enough water to wash her face and wash her body and wash her clothes. And water was so scarce before that she always took the limited water she had that she walked for and she gave it to her family. Uh, she washed her kids' school uniforms. She bathed her children. Uh, she cooked, she cleaned, she gardened. She just didn't use that water for herself because she said, you know, that's what we do as Ugandan women. We always think of our family first. We put their needs above our own. And when Charity Water was able to build a well in her village, just steps from her house, she had an unlimited amount of water. And she was able to feel clean and wash her clothes and, and feel beautiful. So, you know, you've got this kind of extreme, you have, you know, terrible tragedy and, and suffering caused by dirty water. And then you've got these stories of hope and transformation when clean water is brought into these communities. I think these these stories are um, very moving and um, very real. So I'm hoping that people um, that, that hear them understand the impact of the water and, and why you are so energized. Um, so now I just want to sort of get to the point of what can we do to be yeah, part sure. of the solution. Let's get back to the hope. So at Travis Smith, um, we delighted we've taken you on as a client. It's very exciting. You Thank um, you so much. You, right up there with one of our coolest clients, uh, without any doubt. And you know, we are doing some techie things for you. We're trying to work on your tax structuring, your corporate structuring around donors. Um, we're drafting commercial agreements with those brands that are supporting you. There are sort of legal ways that we can help, and we'll yeah. always. Be available to, to continue that um but reaching out to those that, that might end up hearing this what is yep. the best thing that we could do as a collective that the, the issue is clear your purpose is crystal yeah. um so how how there's, do we get there's out one there thing help? yeah it's a community called the spring and you know what what you need to think of this as you know the same way that you're giving money to netflix or spotify uh, or, or a newspaper, or maybe Amazon Prime for, for quick shipping. Uh, we have this community of people who are showing up for clean drinking water every single month, um, giving 20 pounds a month, 30 pounds a month, 50 pounds a month, knowing that 100% of that goes directly to clean water projects. And we, uh, we've been sharing stories of impact. We built some really cool tech where you can see how many people you're getting clean drinking water over time. Uh, you can invite friends and even get credit uh, as they donate and, and see this kind of impact even of your network. So it's, it's an amazing community. We've now got members uh, in 147 different countries. The U.S. is number one and the U.K. is number two. So uh, it's, our, it's our second most generous market when it comes to spring members. So people can just go to thespring.com uh, or charitywater.org slash thespring. And it takes 30 seconds to sign up. And that dependability, you know, that kind of loyal giving, you know, even if someone only had 10 pounds a month, it actually matters and it adds up. And, you know, we, we have seen uh, some, some remarkable results. That has, just the launch of that membership program has helped triple the organization and our impact in just five years. So it's the, the simple way to help, just go to thespring.com 
Um, it's tax deductible in the UK. Uh, you can claim gift aid as well. So that's been, you know, a real um, kind of a boost as well uh, for, for the UK. But, uh, you know, uh, Hannah RMD in the UK would love to see it, you know, give, give the Americans a run for their run for their impact. Okay, well, that sounds good. That sounds like a good challenge for us. And I can also vouch uh, as someone who is a member that um, much to my surprise, I dialed into the first catch up and you were there and I was able to ask you a question. There was real yeah, live we'll do some interaction. online events and yeah, that's it's, cool. Um, we, we, it's a great, great community. Well, thank you, uh, Scott. I know you've got a hundred more of these to do and we really, really appreciate your time and talking to you and supporting your charity and everything that it stands for and the impact that it's having. Uh, it's been a real privilege for us and I hope it's the start of a long journey for the firm and um, for everyone that supports you outside of it too. Yeah, well, Sam, we're deeply grateful for your advocacy and and for everybody at the firm who's worked on Charity Water. And, you know, that's one of the other just real important things. You know, we have this 100% model. So the gift in kind, the pro bono, uh, you know, the, the time and talent is is so valuable to us. That's money we don't have to raise for the overhead side uh, because, you know, generous people and, and firms like yours are, are willing to contribute in that way. So it's, it's hugely valuable and, and we're deeply grateful. Well, thank you, Scott. And, and we're all in, so you know where to find us. Um, awesome. Okay, we'll let you go. Thank you again so much and good luck with uh, what's ahead. Thanks for having me.